Today, though, we're getting back into the book of Isaiah. We've been away from it for about five weeks. We're kind of getting reconnected with it. Um, it's a massive undertaking, the study of Isaiah, partly because it's, it's a huge book, 66 chapters that Isaiah the prophet wrote over a period of about 60 years. Um, lots and lots and lots of material. And maybe we're asking ourselves, so why are we studying Isaiah? And let me just give you three quick reasons why we study uh, the Old Testament in general and Isaiah in particular. Uh, first of all, um, it's God's Word. It's God's Word. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17 said, all Scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for doctrine, for, or teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God will be adequate and equipped for every good work. God's Word equips us. It gets us into proper working condition. When Paul wrote those words, the New Testament wasn't completed yet. He's predominantly referring to the Old Testament Scriptures. All Scripture is inspired by God, and it comes, it's sourced from Him, and it's profitable for us. It adequately equips us. Why study Isaiah? Because it's God's Word to us. He has spoken it to us. We've got a message from Him delivered through the prophet Isaiah. Second of all, we, we study Isaiah because um, it gives us an example on how we ought to live our life. Old Testament scriptures are given as examples to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says that these things happened to them. He's talking about the children of Israel and their wilderness wanderings. These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages has come. We go to the Old Testament scriptures, we go to the book of Isaiah, and God intends that in this book that was written 2,800 years ago, we're going to get massive examples of how we should order our life today. How does He want us to live? It is examples to us, of examples of what not to do, examples of what to do. And thirdly, we study the Old Testament, we study Isaiah because it gives us hope. Romans chapter 15 verse 4 says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, which by the way is the same word that was used in 2 Timothy. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching. Um, it's given for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And as we study through the book of Isaiah, there's just this huge sections of hope in fact, uh, we'll talk about this actually more next week, but uh, there's a lot of judgment sections in the book of Isaiah, a lot of, of uh, uh, displays of God's condemnation, and then interspersed in that are sections of hope. And there's this juxtaposition of, of judgment and hope and judgment and hope and hope and judgment. And especially when we get to the last half of the book, chapter 40 through 66, it's just all over the place. We get a picture of what God's plan is for the days that are yet to come, and it's to give us hope. And so that's why we study Isaiah. Now, we're going to get reintroduced here to Isaiah, and it has been well argued that Isaiah is probably the, the kind of premier prophetic voice in the Old Testament, certainly by the sheer volume of what was written, 66 chapters over this period of 60 years. But what he prophesied is just, is just staggering in its 
theological depth and breadth. No prophet unveiled truth regarding Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of Old Testament, like Isaiah did. No other prophet communicated truth about Jehovah's Messiah, the coming king to reign, like Isaiah did. Theologians have called this book of Isaiah the fifth gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Isaiah, because of its focus on who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished for us, that Jesus is our great deliverer. He's the coming king. It's just, uh, it's just rich in Christology. But you remember this when I mentioned this about Isaiah? You take the, the, book, the whole uh, 66 books of the Bible, 66 books of the Bible, you've got the, the Old Testament, you've got 39 books of the Old Testament, you've got 27 books in the, the, the New Testament, the old kind of focuses on the law. The, the New Testament focuses on grace. Well, you look at the book of Isaiah, and you see this comparison. You've got um, a book that uh, has 66 chapters in it, and the first major section of the book has 39 chapters, and the second major section of Isaiah has 27 chapters, and the first major section has a focus more on judgment and the last half of the book focuses more on God's grace, on His hope, on His comfort. In other words, it's like Isaiah is in, in, in microcosm what the whole Scripture is, macro. Uh, it's just, it's like a little Bible, Isaiah is. It's just rich um, picturing the, the Scriptures. In fact, if you looked at the, the last, those last 27 chapters of Isaiah, which we will in a few weeks. It begins with, in chapter 40, a prophecy of John the Baptist. Well, the New Testament begins with John the Baptist. And it ends, that section, with um, a new heaven and a new earth. And, and Isaiah ends in chapters 64 and 5 and 6 with God's coming kingdom and, and all that will be new. Whoop, I'm going out here. It'll turn your hair curly. Um, but there's this um, uh, kind of uh, picture of the whole Bible in Isaiah. I think that was designed by God purposely that way. And he's communicating to us the richness of the book of Isaiah. One Old Testament scholar, John Oswald, in his book, The Holy One of Israel, said this. And this is, I think, it's a little extended quote, but let me share it with you. He wrote that more than any other biblical book, Isaiah contains all the great themes of biblical theology. So much is this the case that I would contend that if all the other 65 books of the Bible were destroyed, leaving Isaiah alone, we would still have all the essential biblical truth in elemental form. Here in Isaiah are divine transcendence and imminence, original sin and redemption glory, in Isaiah, we have arrogance and humility and implacable divine just, justice and unmerited favor, the utter untrustworthiness of any created thing and the absolute dependability of God. In Isaiah, we see the majesty of the divine king and the suffering of the gentle Savior, substitutionary atonement and the destruction of death. We see salvation by grace alone and the necessity of living holy lives on the part of those who are saved. We see God as the creator of the cosmos and the Lord of history. Then he said, no other prophet comes close to this kind of binding together of biblical thought 
I would even dare to say that no book of the Bible puts all the elements of biblical theology together like Isaiah does. Now, the, the scary thing, or the at times for me frustrating thing, I mean, we've worked our way up to chapter, through chapter 28, and we're, we're going to kind of continue on in the last half of that first major section. And we've spent, uh, what, we started in February, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, you know, seven months doing that. And the frustrating thing for me, uh, and it might be for you too, do you realize, folks, how much we have missed? I mean, do, the levels and depth of biblical truth about God that we haven't even touched on? I mean, it's probably, who knows? In fact, I'm, I hope that it, as, we teach, as I teach through the book of Isaiah and you're sitting there and, in a prayerful way and you've got your Bibles open and you're trusting God, the Holy Spirit, to teach you as I'm talking up here, that as you've got that book open and we're going through a section or maybe a whole chapter of a book, because we're kind of going through this a lot faster than what we normally would in a, in a smaller book, that God the Holy Spirit will just shout some truth to you that I haven't even begun to see in the hours I've studied. And then all of a sudden it just pops up out, out of the Scriptures to you. And you're sitting there thinking, wow, I bet Mark hasn't seen this. I bet anybody, but God, you've given this to me because the depth and the layers of, of truth of God's Word, and that's true for any passage of Scripture. It's, it's rich in truth, and God has communicated to us. And so we just um, trust God that He'll teach us and guide us as we re-engage in the book of Isaiah. Now, to reintroduce Isaiah, you'll recall hopefully early on in our study that as he began his prophetic ministry, he did so after this incredible vision that he had one day in the temple. It's recorded for us in Isaiah chapter 6. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. The commissioning of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another in this antiphonal song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled, at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. What a life-changing encounter Isaiah had with the holy, holy, holy God. Profoundly impacted Isaiah. It was this vision of, uh, of, that Isaiah had of God that shaped the entire message of these 66 chapters. This theme of the thrice holy God, it's woven throughout all, everything that Isaiah wrote. 25 times in the book of Isaiah, 
Jehovah God is referred to as the Holy One of Israel more than any other writer in the Old Testament. Profoundly impacted Isaiah. He's the Holy, Holy, Holy One of Israel. Holiness is a concept that means that God, in its most basic form, it just means that um, it's, a, it's a word that simply means to be separate from, completely distinct, totally other, in a class of its own. That's the, the root idea of the Hebrew word kadosh, holy, separate, completely other, nothing like it, unique, one of a kind. Like it says in Isaiah 15, 11, who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. There is no one like you. Or in 1 Samuel 2, 2, there is no one holy like you, Lord. Indeed, there's no one beside you. There is no other rock like our God. No one. You go to the last book in the Bible, book of Revelation. John had this vision of the choir in heaven, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And they said, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty, Righteous and true are all your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is what Isaiah saw. He saw the transcendent, magnificent holiness of God. The utter complete moral, absolute moral purity of God, this concept of holiness. It's those two um, kind of avenues of display, two things of the holiness of God. The majestic holiness, I saw the Lord exalted in heaven. His robe, the train of his robe, filling the temple and smoke and the shaking, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Majestic, there's no one like him and moral purity. Woe am I. I'm ruined. I'm a sinner. Majestic holiness. Complete purity. Holiness. J.I. Packer once wrote, holy is the word which the Bible uses to express all that is distinctive and transcendent in the revealed nature and character of the Creator, all that brings home to us the infinite distance and difference that there is between Him and ourselves. Holiness in this sense means quite comprehensively the Godness of God. Everything about Him which sets Him apart from men. Holy, majestic holiness. His omniscience, His omnipotence, His transcendent glory He's in a class all of his own. Isaiah saw something that day in that temple, in that vision. And his supreme purity, moral purity. I'm ruined. I'm a sinner. Well, with that vision of God's holiness imprinted in his mind, Isaiah writes his prophetic scriptures. An understanding of God, and it's woven all throughout this book. And Isaiah was therefore perfectly suited to proclaim the message that God had him proclaim because he had seen the holiness of God. Now we see this 
clearly in the first 39 chapters, this first major section of the book, we see this, as, as, as Isaiah writes this um, prophetic scriptures, and we see it so clearly, I think, predominantly in this exalted purity of God and the call of Isaiah to his people, the people of God, concerning their sin. It's so applicable for us today as well because we too can lose sight of the transcendent holiness of God like the people of Israel did. 1 Corinthians 10, these things are written as examples to us. What does the people of God look like that have lost a per perspective of the holiness of God? What, what, is, what do God's people, and that's the, that the Jewish people, they were in a covenant relationship with God. They were His, the apple of His eye. These were His chosen people. But they'd lost something of the majestic and moral holiness and transcendence of God. What happens to people that, that that takes place? Well, Isaiah writes that for us. He explains it to us. And let me go through a couple of things as we kind of review early on passages of Isaiah. Consider these, these stinging indictments against the people of God who had lost a vision of God. First of all, well, first of all, God is abandoned. You lose a sense of the holiness of God, God is relegated to a back shelf in a faraway corner of a closet that's, on, that's locked. God is abandoned. Chapter 1, verse 4, a last sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away from Him. When a person loses a sense of the awesome separateness and distinctness and otherliness of God, he's quickly forgotten. Abandoned for what? You've turned away from the Holy One of Israel. Turned away to what? Well, other things that capture our attention, like pleasures, like pursuit of material things, like things that are going to make us happy, anything that is self-focused, we abandon God to embrace whatever it is in life we want. A few weeks ago, I was sitting with a, a man who, not from this congregation, somewhere else, who said, Mark, I have everything a man could want, and he did. Multiple homes, vacation homes around the world, um, toys, man toys, everything he would want. And with tears in his eyes, he said, I am entirely miserable. There's a man who had abandoned the Lord. You, you turn away from the awesome holiness of God. What do you go to turn to? Second of all, you lose a sense of the holiness of God. You're going to lose sight of others, social injustice. It's a theme that's throughout Isaiah. Verse 23 of chapter 1, your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. 
They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Why? Because when we lose a sense of the majestic awesomeness of God and put it on ourselves, we, when we put our eyes on ourselves, we start losing the perspective of the needs of others because it becomes all about me. We become self-focused. We live for our own pleasures. And we ignore the plight of the less fortunate. This is a theme in Isaiah. But standing before the one and holy, awesome, transcendent God, who alone dwells in unapproachable light, no one is better than anyone else. We all come at the same level before the cross. And this was lost in the 8th century B.C. And is it not oftentimes lost in the 21st century? When we lose sight of the majestic awesomeness of God, Isaiah tells us, we'll lose sight of the plight of the less fortunate. There's a third thing that takes place when our eyes get off focus on Him. Pride. Over and over again in Isaiah, and verse 12 of chapter 2 is just an example. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who's lifted up, that he may be abased. Over and over again, Isaiah's calling out God's people for their arrogant pride. Because when God's holiness is forgotten, we are left without any need for him. We'll figure it out. We'll solve our dilemma. We become the center and the focus of the universe. We raise ourselves up to the highest standard. And it becomes all about us because we are in awe of ourselves when we forget the transcendent majesty of God. Dethrone the majestically holy God, place ourselves at the center of all that. What takes place, something that Richard Nieberg said in a scathing denunciation of the church. He said he described it as, we have a God then without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. A God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Why? Because we don't need them. Why would a God have wrath? Why would there be judgment? We lose sight of the majestic moral purity, the other total otherliness of the holy, holy, holy God we are left with. A God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. By the way, that's why when we get in Isaiah chapter 53, we're, it's a shocking chapter that in its clarity so vivid of the sacrificial suffering servant who died for our sins. It's so clear, Isaiah chapter 53. That's a chapter that is meaningless apart from Isaiah 6 and this wonderful vision of the grandeur and the greatness of God. What else is lost? What else happens when a, a people um, forget the holiness of God? Well, they're subject to deception. Remember this verse in chapter 5? Woe to those who call evil good 
and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is what was happening in Isaiah's day. And it can happen in our day if, if we lose sight of who God is. We lose a sense of the majestic holiness of God. We lose clarity and common sense and just a general understanding of how life works. We start calling things that are bad good. Moral vision is lost. Righteous standards of holiness are lost. They're turned upside down. We have politicians today who will lie, steat and, uh, 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 cheat, and steal to maintain the killing of unborn children, which they call moral integrity. Figure that one out. Because we live in a world that has lost a sense of the majesty and the grandeur of who God is. We're living in a deceived world, in a mixed-up world, because we've lost a sense of the divine, of the holy. People who lose a sense of the holiness of God live in fear. Again, all throughout Isaiah's, we, we, we'll see this. Just as an example, chapter 7, King Ahaz of Judah was shaking in his boots because of what was happening in his world around him. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now and meet Ahaz and say to him, take care, be calm, have no fear, don't be faint-hearted. Are you kidding me, Ahaz would say? Do you see what's going on in the world? Do you see what's happening? I'm going to lose my kingdom. I'm going to die. Have no fear. But he had no concept of the transcendent holiness of God. God's word through Isaiah the prophet said, you're not to fear what they fear. You're not to be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. When we lose that understanding of our transcendent God dwelling on His sovereign throne and the glory filling the temple, all of a sudden things of this world can become larger than life and grip us with fear. And there's plenty of things in Isaiah's day to be humanly fearful of. No question about that. Savage Assyrians were pressing in on the borders. They were about to destroy Jerusalem. They were being surrounded by the evil wickedness of these savage Assyrians. And God says, do you see me? High, exalted don't fear anything else. Fear me. And every day we live in these lives fighting the fear of disease, fighting the fear of a loss of a job maybe, fighting the fear of the secularists who are out to silence Christians, fear of our kids rebelling or our spouse deserting us, fear of financial ruin, whatever it might be. And fear can grip a person, and it will if we lose sight of the awesome, majestic, sovereign glory of God. All the more we need a vision of the majestic holiness of God 
in His throne. Last week we did a, this, um, Brian Hausman, this series of, with parents on, uh, on um, a technology, and if you were at that Saturday morning conference, man, I, my kids are grown. I've got grandkids, but my kids are grown, but I'm sitting there, and it kind of, it, it, it grips you with fear. I mean, the, it's a wicked world out there, a wicked world, and through modern technology, it's, it's right in our homes, folks, and our children, our eight, nine-year-old little boys are getting exposed to things that they should never get exposed to, and it's happening. And to sit in a conference like that and hear that, and it just it breaks your heart. It, it grips you with fear for our children, for this generation of what's happening and what they're seeing. And it, it's like you want to just say, parents, grandparents, wake up. And that's why one of the reasons why we're doing the 120-day assessment and the 100-day campaign. And yet, as I study the book of Isaiah, you know what God is wanting us to to, to, to inculcate into the life of our, in our homes and our children? Yeah, we need to have a certain fear for what's going and offered in the world there, but you know what God is saying? Fear me. You know what our children need? They need to see an awesomely holy, majestic God. Do you understand this, folks? Our children need a vision of God, and as a parent or grandparent, as an aunt and an uncle, are you bringing that to bear in their life, in their heart? Holy, holy, holy is God, and nothing else measures up to His greatness. Folks, this is what our families need. They need a vision of God. His greatness. Fears of this world will be put in their proper perspective in light of a transcendent vision of the glorious God. And somewhere and somehow, it seems like we're failing at our home level, at home, of presenting that. It leads us to Another one that you see it all throughout the book of Isaiah, a vain worship. Chapter 29, the Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of mere traditions learned by rote. This is what Isaiah saw. He'd go to the temple He'd see the people gathering there. He would see people going through the motions and yet watch how they lived the rest of the time. There was no sense of the holiness of God. There was no sense of, 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 of a worshipful spirit. The problem was not that they failed to show up in the temple for worship. The problem was not that they failed to bring their sacrifices. It was the problem of the heart. And even in Jesus' day, he quotes this passage as we read in Matthew to the Pharisees. You got all the outward stuff down pat, but your heart, it's out of the heart. The sense of awe, the sense of the worthiness of God was gone, and so worship was empty. Matt Redman, the songwriter and worship leader, wrote, worship must always contain an element of the otherness of God. 
We must be ever mindful that the one we come before is high, holy, and completely off the charts of our comprehension. Grace must never become an excuse to ignore the heights of who it is we are dealing with. Grace must never become an excuse to ignore the heights of the one that we have come to worship. Worship is a willful, joyful response to to what? To the majesty of God. The songs we sing here, the worship team tries to select because they have concepts of God that will lift us up. Who God is, what God has done for us. Songs that will rehearse the gospel to us and remind us of His greatness and His love and His mercy, yes, and His, and His compassion, but also of, his, of the wonder of His holiness, of the awesome, majestic God that we serve. And worship is an affair of the heart, a heart that responds with deep feelings and affections for this God and in a sense of awe. You realize that no other attribute of God in the New Testament is mentioned three times. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, God is love, 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 grace, grace, grace. No other place in the Bible do you see a, a, a thrice merciful God. But it's His holiness. Holy, holy, holy. We come into His presence as we come to worship. And sometimes I think, folks, is it mere rote? Is it just the thing to do? Have you ever been to any of those magnificent uh, structures in Europe? The sanctuaries that were built, you know, the flying buttresses and this huge, and you walk in there, and it's like the awesome architectural grandeur that was to point people to an awesome God, and yet, sadly, it never happened throughout Europe. How do we come? How'd you come this morning in worship? You know, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad fellowship is, is a, you know, it's a kind of laid back place and we enjoy people and, you know, and I don't know, folks. Sometimes I wonder, why do we come late, leave early in the presence of almighty, holy, holy, holy God. Why? Because we have lost a sense of the grandeur, the awesomeness of God. And sometimes I think, folks, we need to come in here and we ought to slam our face on the floor. Because that's the God who is here in our presence. And one day, one day we will. Those loved ones of yours, those friends of ours, that are with the Lord, who slipped into glory at one point, they saw in that moment of entrance into glory the exalted Lord. And their worship has never been the same. And we get to at least try to do that here on earth. But when we forget who of our worship then the how becomes all the focal point. I don't like that song. I don't like that tune. I don't like the way they do this. 
Here's another thing that takes place when you lose sight of the transcendent holy God. We become self-reliant. Verse 1 of chapter 31, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses. <laughs> they trust in chariots because they're many and in horsemen because they're very strong. But they don't look to the Holy One of Israel. They don't seek the Lord. And of course, in the historical context of what was happening in Isaiah's day, um, Assyrians were coming. The massive armies of the brutal, savage Assyrians were, were, were coming. And what are you going to do? And down there, a little bit to the south, were the Egyptians. And so let's form an alliance with the Egyptians. They'll help us, and together we can fight. And God is saying, you're doing what? They had lost a sense of the grandeur of the transcendent power and holiness of God. And when we lose sight of who God is, oh, so easily we can become self-reliant, self-dependable. In fact, I think that's one of the bottom line truths of Isaiah. You're not trusting me. Why? Because you've lost sight of who I am. God recedes into the shadows of our mind. Our affections for Him are minimized to nothingness. He becomes irrelevant. And in the day in and day out affairs of our life, it leaves us to kind of figure it out by our own cleverness and design. Folks, we live in a day and age in a culture that provides us with a lot of things that we can just kind of handle life ourselves. Certainly here in America, the land of the brave, the home of the, the, home of the free, we can do whatever we want to do, it seems like. We just work a little harder. We just go to the right schools. We just get the right job. We marry that right person. We certainly make sure we vote the right politics because that's our salvation. We eat the right food, you know, take the right supplements. And everything's going to be fine. And on rare occasions when we find that we're in a really big jam, well, we'll, we'll shoot a prayer up to a God that is conveniently there like the proverbial rabbit's foot that we can rub Oh, but if he doesn't come through to us, we get mad at him. Now, there's nothing wrong with these things. Nothing wrong with hard work and going to a good school and finding the right job and voting the right politic, politics. In fact, we've got an election coming up. As citizens and as Christians, we need to go vote and vote biblical values. But when we lose sight of the transcendent holiness of God that he is the one who reigns over all. Those things become our idols. You see, the holiness of God demands far more. It calls us to far more. Jerry Bridges, who is now with the Lord, who was on staff with the Navigators for many years, was once asked shortly before he died, what are the things that concern you most for the church in the United States? And he wrote, there are so many needs in the church today that it's difficult to single out one that is the greatest. However, if I had to pick one, I would say the most fundamental need is an ever-growing awareness of the holiness of God. And so the question for us today, and for me, is simply when was the last time, when was the last time I had a vision 
of the holiness of God. I mean, not, not like the one Isaiah had, because God doesn't do that these days. I mean, rarely. Oh, would be nice, wouldn't it, to go home today and have the heavens open and all of a sudden see the transcendent, glorious God and the reminder by the seraphim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. But I'm talking about a very real encounter with the living God that enlarges our sense of His awesomeness and reminds us of our nothingness, that elicits from us a response, oh God, our help in ages past. You're my only hope. You're my strength. You've, you're all that I have because there's no one like you. When was the last time, folks, you had a vision of God? When was the last time that any of us prayed like Moses prayed in Exodus 37? God, show me your glory. I need a fresh vision of who you are. And God in His kindness has given us in Isaiah 6, and vicariously through Isaiah we can experience that, that time, but it becomes sometimes merely words on a page, and we we close it and walk away, and all of a sudden, deception continues, and fear continues, and pride continues, and our vain worship. So when was the last time we really turned, as the old hymn said, turned our eyes upon Jesus and looked full in His wonderful face, so that the things of this world grew strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace? Do you want that? Have you asked God for it? Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And we ask God for it, and if He gives it to us, then we had better be prepared for the radical alteration that will come to our life. Because no one walks away from an encounter with the thrice holy God and remains the same. And the fact of the matter is every one of us in this room, every one of us, needs some changing in our life. And so God, show us your glory. We need a, an encounter with you, Father. Maybe tomorrow morning in the quietness of our devotion time with you. As we just are quietly reading and meditating on your word, then all of a sudden, Father, this is something that you, by your grace, have to provide for us. Lord, as we read in Isaiah 6, Isaiah didn't go seeking this. He didn't go pursuing it. It just... Boom, you hit him with it. And Father, you, you, we need this. We need this. Um, as your children, as we walk in this world, in the, the darkness of our day, what we need most of all is an understanding of who you are. 
of your majestic greatness. And so, Father, all we can do is say we present ourselves to you as living sacrifices, seeking not to be conformed to the way the world thinks, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds through a fresh, powerful, new vision of who you are as you have revealed yourself in the Scriptures. May that happen, Father, even this week. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.